This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mummies. Corridies. Legal petitions. And George V meets the Flying Dutchman. Our next sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, Once Upon a Time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed, they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. At Crazy Dog Spirit asks Ken and Robin. How do you make the mummy a more interesting monster? Robin, I was not aware the mummy was a dull monster, but maybe you can shed some light on this topic. So I, I too, think that the mummy is an interesting monster. So I guess uh, maybe we want to ask ourselves why anyone would think it is boring before we go on about what it is interesting. And maybe they're thinking about the D&D version of the mummy, which is just a thing that you hit and is flammable. And uh, later versions of the mummy have become cooler because it kind of gives you mummy rot and stuff. So you become like the mummy when you get hit by it. But there's a a lot of big emotional ideas behind various uh, versions of the mummy. One of them is the the guilt of the looter of uh, you take a curse upon yourself by being involved in tomb robbing and therefore anger the uh, mummy spirits who come back to life and and stalk you. And that gives you the sort of scenario where the monster is coming after you. And no matter where you go, the monster is hunting you. Add a whole political dimension to that because the original idea of the mummy's curse from which the idea of the mummy of the monster comes from was uh, rooted not just in looting, but imperial looting. So you have that whole idea of the uh, revenge of the 
the colonized or the revenge of the conquered. And you also have in the original Karloff version, you have the mummy is a not just a reanimated creature all wrapped up in gauze and glue and stuff, but is seen in human form and is an archetype of the sort of sorceress seducer type. So although that does sort of pretty clearly point by point steal a lot of stuff from Dracula, the, the movie version of Dracula specifically, it is another element that we see even in the, the sort of later uh, 90s mummy movie that the mummy you know, isn't just coming to kill you, but it's coming to steal your loved ones away and, and seduce them away. So it seems between all of those elements, there's a lot to play with. Yeah, the fact that the mummy in sort of the horror tradition of the mummy is almost always a sorcerer is another big element of it. It's more, it has more in common, I guess, with the D&D lich than it does with the D&D mummy, which, as you say, is just a flammable, you know, ball of, of gauze pretty much. So I think that, you know, once you start looking at what you do with a lich and you start doing it with a mummy and you add either the going after someone's, you know, DNPC or a female player character, or I guess a male player character, if it's a girl mummy or, you know, the mummies are are, uh, into that, then you have an aspect of sort of personalizing it. And then, as you say, if you're if your game history is developed enough to have any sort of historical or imperial consciousness, you can add that sort of political undertone that uh, shows up in the Victorian mummy stories even before it shows up in the movies. I think that the other one of the other really great things that you can do with a mummy, though, is you can you know change it up from Egypt. Uh, Egypt, of course, is where we get most of our sort of mummy iconography and our famous mummies, but obviously there's mummies all over the world. There's the famous mummy, mummies of Guanajuato, and there's the Aztec mummy which people will remember from, you know, wrestling films and such. There were mummies <laughs> in medieval Aragon that were sort of, uh, you know, put up in, in, in dry spots in the mountains to, to dry out. There's uh, ancient Chinese mummies. There's Vietnamese Buddhist magician mummies that are covered in lacquer, which is kind of interesting because then those are mummies that, A, aren't particularly flammable, and B, uh, you know, have sort of a lacquered armor innate in them. I think that that's kind of a neat thing. You've got, uh, I guess, the Javaro shrunken heads are mummies, so you could have mummy heads that just sort of contain spells, and you wake it up and it sort of has a, a vibe, both of the sort of brazen head of the magician, but also the, you know, the, the, the separated body part that actually wants to be attached to another body and, and go back to living in the real world, even though, of course, it would, you know, when you take off its, its mask, it, it turns out to be a horrible shrunken, a, a shrunken head from somewhere. And you've also got your naturally mummified corpses, which uh, could come back to life and haunt you for digging them up just as easily as a traditional sarcophagus mummy could. So you could be digging up a bog, and all of a sudden you dig up the bog man, and you take him back to your lab to uh, do all sorts of uh, tests on him, like the ice man who was found in the Italian Alps. But uh, maybe he doesn't take too kindly to that, and that you know, modern-day scientific study is the equivalent of 1920s grave robbing. And uh, there you go. You've got another creature that's come back to uh, punish us in this case for the hubris of our science, which of course is another super classic horror right. theme. Yeah, there's um, another thing that you can do with mummies that I think maybe isn't done very much. It's done a little bit oddly enough in the, in the Brendan Fraser mummy movie is that the mummy shows up and immediately starts up with his old, you know, millennia old political agenda, even though it's completely out of touch with the modern world. So the mummy in the Brendan Fraser mummies is going to make himself magical pharaoh, and you could have the mummies in 
Urumki, those uh, Tarim Basin mummies that were actually Tokarians probably, and uh, Celtic, barely possibly, but they've got the plaid and their red hair and, and uh, Caucasian uh, skull shapes and everything else. And these sort of white, angry, warband, revolutionary, drunken fighter mummies show up in you know, Xinjiang, which of course is a tinder is a tinderbox already waiting to go off, and they add sort of another third force that either they team up with the Xinjiang uh, Muslim uh, freedom fighters and or terrorists, or they team up with the communist government, or they say we're going to set up our own magical uh, Xinjiang, and then the uh, Muslims and the Chinese have to team up to fight off the the mummies of Urumqi. I mean, the the, the notion that the mummy is literally frozen in time that is because he's been preserved and mummified his brain can't really adapt to the future in the way that maybe a vampire who's lived all this time might be able to, or an, or an immortal sorcerer. But, you know, he shows up and is like, well, back in the day, the most important thing was to control the Great Silk Road, so I guess we're going to start doing that. You could also have a mummy come back, say you want to use him in more of a fantasy context than in a version of our world where horror things happen. Let's say you have a classic medieval-style-ish, uh, D&D-ish kind of world. You could have a mummy... Uh, discovered from an ancient culture that no longer exists anymore, and the mummy comes back to life, and it's intelligent, and it speaks, and it isn't overtly horrific anything. You've just, you know, released it from its tomb, and it is able to revivify itself. It doesn't even have to, you know, grab your men-at-arms in the party and drain their blood. Maybe it just has some other way of coming back to life. And then you've got an interesting problem in that it goes back to your city and starts reintroducing its culture, and it has new magic that has been forgotten and it has different gods it wants to worship and there are social schisms in your fantasy city that create a group of dispossessed or discontented people who are suddenly very attracted to the idea of you know forget the present day culture where they're oppressed and everything let's join this guy's culture where everybody gets to be equal and powerful and get new magic and you know the mummy version of ghost shirts or whatever it is right. so that you could have the throwback from the ancient past start to recreate its politics in your present day without there being anything overtly horrific about it. But what there is about it is that there's enormous social upheaval and then you as the adventurers have to decide what side you're on. Are you actually happy that this guy is changing all of the social mores and creating this rebel movement? Or are you aligned with the powers that be and want to put them down? Or are you just flat out in trouble with the king because you brought this by guy back and he created a rebellion. So you have all sorts of ways in which the, you know, you can remove all of this, the horrific aspects from it and just take the idea of a being from a long time ago who has a totally different set of rules and knowledge and comes back and it's the tools and knowledge that change and spread and create a threat and upheaval and dramatic conflict. Another possibility is that you make the mummy unhuman. You know, we assume that the mummy's going to come back and he's just going to be an Egyptian magician or he's going to be a Tokarian barbarian lord or whatever he's going to be. But maybe he, you know, the, the Egyptians obviously mummified cats and crocodiles and all kinds of other animals. And then they would, you know, put a crocodile head on a dude's body and mummify him so that you'd have your own little avatar of Sobek to hang out with in the, in the afterlife. And, you might have one of those guys come back, or just the mummified cat that can be a real cat, but he's also got that weird connection to the dead, and it's not so much that the cat is the bad guy or the villain, but he's a very, very powerful, you know, 
artifact or a living channel to the world of the undead or to the world of the gods, and so it becomes a sort of a MacGuffin to hunt down this uh, awakened, mummified animal. Or it, of course, could be a, the mummy of, of something else. There's a novel, I think, called Some Eight or something like that, that was about a team of guys that try to revive a mummy, and it turns out that the mummy they're reviving was an alien that had crashed in Egypt and had been mummified because it was obviously really important. And so they didn't know that it was a, uh, an alien, and so when they wake it up, it turns out it's you've got sort of a science fictional mummified type activity going on. When I was uh, but a young sprout, the thing that most creeped me out reading Eric Von Daniken was his account of a cave in China, which of course then would be safely away from the threat of verification <laughs> of any kind, uh, which contained mummies which had oversized alien heads. Now, surely this being Von Daniken, this was just a, a misinterpretation of human mummies, if not just uh, outright nonsense from the jump. But as an idea, that's also a lot of fun, is that you can have mummies that are that never come back to life, don't change the social fabric, don't do anything, but their very existence is a threat to the current order because they reveal something. So in this case, the alien mummies become the MacGuffin that you either want to get to so that you can prove that aliens exist or that you can get the DNA from them that you need to end the alien plague, or you can be the people trying to cover up the fact that the aliens exist. You know, the fact that someone has busted into this cave, the mummies which have been in stasis, you know, maybe that's just the alien... Uh, suspended animation chamber, and by opening them up, you not only wake them up, but you send the beacon off to their uh, mothership that's going to bring them to Earth to pick them up. And of course, that's probably going to be bad news, or at least, again, another source of political upheaval, so that you can be now racing to undo either what you have foolishly done in the prologue, which I think is the most emotionally satisfying option, or to undo what the stupid NPCs have done, which I think many players will find the most emotionally satisfying because mm -hmm. they don't want to, you know, be chumped by the premise. Right. They don't want to be cast as the, as the, as the idiots. They want to be cast as the heroes. I think that another possibility that you might have is the mummy is a mystery and not in the sense of which of these smooth talking uh, Egyptian guys who showed up at the dinner party is a mummy, but in the sense of, let's say you've got a mummy that awakens. There's a great Alexander Irvine, a novel called A Scattering of Jades about an Aztec mummy that is in Mammoth Cave for some reason, and it wakes up and there's all kinds of 19th century American activity going on. And But maybe that there's other sort of um, Von Denneken-level stories of Roman mummies being found in uh, Arizona or Kentucky or uh, some other kind of out-of-place mummy. And if the mummy wakes up and starts stalking around and causing troubles, the way to find its animating you shabti jar or, or, or whatever is you have to figure out how that mummy got here. And if it's, a, if it's just from the local museum, that's one thing, but if it's from some other place and you have to dig back, sort of do a mystery solving archeology span into the history of your own town or the, your own setting and find out how did this mummy get here? Who brought it here? For what purpose? Was it a colonist that showed up in ancient times and he died and he was mummified by his faithful servants? Or what was the story with this mummy? And that, sort of take a little of that ghost laying, we need to find out the history of this being to, to stop it uh, type question, you put that into a mummy, I think that that can uh, yield a lot of a lot of good parallels with archaeology as the way that you get to the mummies in the first place. And for an even further out-of-place mummy, you could have a space opera game like Ashen Stars, right. 
where at the beginning you find an Egyptian pyramid full of mummies on this uh, planet many, many light years from Earth. And that's the starting point of the mystery is that you've been hired to figure out how the heck this happened. So uh, is the ancient aliens theory correct? Did uh, Egyptians come from a far planet? Is there a, a portal uh, somewhere on this planet that you can go direct to Earth? And that creates all sorts of economic and uh, possibly even military problems because there's this strategic point. Does it go back to the past in Earth, which allows you to uh, start messing around with the time stream? So there's a whole bunch of different uh, possible options you could have there. In a superhero game, uh, your mummy could wind up to be, uh, you know, a Jack Kirby-style uh, new god who, uh, once unwrapped, starts causing all sorts of trouble and, of course, has uh, mega superpowers. Yeah, the notion of the mummy, I guess we're sort of cycling back around to the mummy as necromancer or the mummy as lich, but the notion that the mummy is a god, I think, is a, is a really strong one. And, you know, because the pharaohs, of course, were literally gods, and if you've got a mummy, Alexander the Great was mummified in honey and, uh, and, and mummifying stuff, and his body was lost sometime in the late Roman era. So his mummy could be lying around. You wake up Alexander the Great. A, he's a god. B, he's the greatest military strategist ever. C, he's, you know... Covered in delicious covered honey. Covered in delicious honey, so he's a, attractive to the youth segment. And it, and that could be sort of a thing where you have... Either he sort of starts, you know, takes another identity, a la Ozymandias in Watchmen, or he just says, hey, I'm Alexander the Great, I'm back. You know, you guys, you can send your savants and your Brahmins to find out why that is. But meanwhile, it seems like uh, the Middle East is overdue for good conquering again. So I'm going to take that on. And then, you know, the, the cat's in the, in, in, you know, in with the kittens. And if your mummy is so powerful that you can't just, you know, set him on fire or shoot him, you have to defeat him as a, as a real power player that he becomes all, you know, just from the jump, he becomes a big threat to the status quo, not a slow build, but just, oh, right, it's a, it's a returned god, or it's a returned Alexander the Great. Now we're, we're kind of in trouble. And uh, on a more subtle note, you could have played with the idea that the whole idea in which Egyptian mythology is that the uh, if you want to get to the Western lands, to the afterlife, you have to sort of be anchored in this mummy that is mummified according to proper procedures. So the idea that the mummies are then being moved out of their tombs and into museums could then create a contagion effect where the connections to the Western lands start migrating with them. And if you get a critical mass of mummies in a museum under the right configuration, perhaps a portal to the Western lands opens up and that allows all sorts of things to cross over the boundaries. And that could be a quest where you're going into the Western lands to uh, bust down its doors and take its stuff, or that the uh, creatures or, and people from that afterlife are beginning to leak back into ours because they take a look at our cell phones and our uh, televisions and our uh, refrigerators, and they decide that uh, although the Western lands have been superior to the material world for uh, millennia, maybe now they would like to uh, take over this. So you could have a whole invasion not of mummies, but of the spirits of pharaoh after pharaoh after pharaoh, plus all of their uh, warriors and servants and all of these people who they conveniently had killed along with them to be their uh, soldiers for the invasion. And maybe that's been the plan all along, right? They've been waiting 4,000 years until we'd be dumb enough to dig them all up and put them in museums so that they could uh, wage this final invasion. Yeah, the, the sort of notion of mummy contamination also, of course... The, the Egyptians buried so many mummies. They had so many. I mean, the, the culture that mummified things 
ran depending on how you you know draw the terminus at the beginning. Right. So much so that they were just used as fuel in the uh, in Victorian era. Right. They were they were tossed uh, into uh, the cabins of uh, the, the the furnaces of trains. They were used as ground up medicine in alchemical medicine and 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 sort of. Uh, I don't know, it's not necessarily folk medicine if you're charged an arm and a leg by a professional doctor, but it's nonsense medicine. And then it was also used as pigment in paintings. If you painted something with mummy uh, brown or, or mummy color, then it was it, it had its own sort of unique glister. And so you could have a painting that was painted with mummy powder that uh, obtains this sort of uh, magical uh, afterlife-y power. Or, or, your, or your haunted uh, train. Or, or a haunted train. Everyone who took the mummy pills in medieval Germany all of their descendants are suddenly, you know, awakened to, you know, being possessed by the mummies that they ate, or they're awakened. If you, and again, if you're in a, a, a medieval-y fantasy-type setting, maybe people do take mummy pills, and it's like, oh, mummy pills are really good. They're the, uh, they're the way you get resurrected if you die. And people are like, hold on, I'm eating mummies to get resurrected? Yeah, yeah, everyone does. It's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. fine. Just, just don't worry. But if the mummy liberation front comes uh, our way, just tell them the other guys who are taking mummy pills and we're not. But I, I think that that can maybe add a little frisson of, of weirdness to, to healing magic and, and resurrection magic in those games. Is like, well, you have to take enough mummy pills before you die to make sure that there's enough in you. I mean, you can't take it after you're dead, obviously. So start eating mummies now. And then... That ideally will will make your players a little more nervous about you know there's always a resurrection spell waiting for me and just as there's always a resurrection spell awaiting us there's always another segment so it's time to uh, entomb this one and move on to the next. Sweaty palms, cupped shaky hands, the phantom taste of mountain dew on your tongue. These are the symptoms of game withdrawal. And while there is no known cure, the One Shot Podcast can help. One Shot records game sessions with Chicago improvisers, creatives, and notable nerds. Like game designer Will Heinmarch, writer-director Brian Holden, and Batmanologist Chris Sims. Unlike most actual play shows, One Shot explores a wide variety of gaming systems as one-and-done one-shot adventures. With popular games like Pathfinder, Call of Cthulhu, and Star Wars Edge of the Empire, indie classics like Feng Shui, Fiasco, and Dread, and unique gems like Everyone is John, one Shot is a great way to discover your new favorite RPG. This month, One Shot is playing the gumshoe-based Time Watch. Some brilliant writing and design work went into that game. If you missed the Time Watch Kickstarter, this is your chance to see how it plays. Head over to peachesandhotsauce.com to access an archive of 40-plus episodes. Help control your between-adventure cravings with One Shot. So, once again, it's time for another segment of Can and or Robin Talk to Someone Else? And today I'm talking to a longtime friend who also happens to be the Associate Professor of History at Campion College in Regina. And uh, it's my friend Allison Fizzard. Um, and so, you study a particular form of history that will be of great interest to Ken and Robin listeners. You study the medieval period, and uh, I understand that your research also covers a perennial Ken and Robin topic, which is uh, food, which we talked about in the food hut. Uh, but maybe you could start by telling us about the Tudor monastery that you study. 
Okay, well, actually, um, I study a bunch of them now. I, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I was... So at the associate level, you add additional monasteries? Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah, like going up a level, you know. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, when I was a PhD student, I, would, I was studying one particular monastery, Plimpton Priory, in England. And then sort of when I was um, still looking at some documents related to that, I came across a whole bunch of documents that... Um, related to when the monasteries were dissolved in um, England and Wales by Henry VIII. So yeah, when these monasteries were dissolved, um, everyone who had any kind of association with the monasteries came out of the woodwork for compensation. So maybe I can get you to back up just a little bit and uh, talk about the dissolution of the monasteries okay. and, and when and why that happened. Okay, well, Henry VIII, when he decided that he wanted to get rid of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who did not give him a male heir, and he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. Um, that was one of the things that related to um, the Church of England breaking away from Rome and becoming ultimately the Anglican Church. And so there were a series of um, changes, and one of them was that Henry VIII thought, well, okay, there's all these monasteries and... Sitting there looking very prosperous. Yeah, having a lot of land and a lot of shrines for saints that have jewels all over them. So, hey, why don't I take that stuff over and either keep it for myself or give it to friends or sell it to friends or, you know, whatever. So he knocked down the monastery's door and, and took their stuff. Uh, yeah. Dungeon adventure would. Yeah, exactly, and sent various henchmen to, to do the job. So, anyway, all of these monasteries had people who were servants or who had uh, purchased retirement arrangements. So that's what I'm particularly interested in, because back in the 1530s, when this was going on, people would decide to purchase something that they called a corrody, C-O-R-R-O-D-Y. Um, so corrody was kind of like a package of retirement benefits. So often it included the right to live in a room on monastery grounds or a house on monastery grounds. So it was very often married couples, for example. So they'd have the right to go and live in this little house, um, either on the grounds or right outside. And then they would also say, okay, we want entitlements to food and ale, uh, maybe the right to a garden, maybe the right to keep animals like cows and you know, chickens, sheep. M&Ms, but not the brown ones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what I'm studying right now is what did people want? Like what seemed to be the most important things food-wise that they want guarantees of in terms of you know, so and so much of whatever. So what what were their priority foodstuffs? Right, and so by actually specifying what it is that they thought they needed to retire on, that actually tells us a lot about what people expected to eat and what the typical diet would have been in general. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the top two, absolutely bread and ale, you know, and so um, some people are wanting, like, seven loaves of bread, basically one loaf a day, or seven gallons of ale, very uh, common entitlement, so basically getting a gallon uh, per day. 
And that may seem like, well, that's a lot of ale <laughs> to be drinking, <laughs> but they might have had a servant that they may have shared that with. And it may have been weak ale, um, so wouldn't have been necessarily as high in alcohol content. Right, and this is a period when ale was much purer and safer than drinking water. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. So they, with ale, they often just say best quality ale or second quality ale, like they might want allotments of both. And so the grades are usually along with like the best quality is what the monks are drinking. So they'll say like the monks quality ale and then the second best would be. We all you know, know about quality ale and monks. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, but also for the bread, like they would, uh, I mean, it's kind of amazing. There's so many bread terms. Like I've been spending a lot of time just trying to chase down obscure bread terms. So if any of your listeners are experts in really obscure bread terms, yeah, let me know. So are these like descriptors of various types of breads and some of them are still are mysterious now? Yeah, like something like um, bread de la tempest. It's like, okay, what the heck is bread de la tempest? I, I mean, I've checked every possible dictionary from the era and have not been able to figure that out. And one of them is pomp bread. It's like, okay, um, pomp refers to certain breads in Provence where you just were. Uh, what the heck would that mean in 1530s? Can't, you know, no idea. So, um, so it's kind of interesting. It was like, I didn't, when I started studying monastic history, I didn't think I'd really take this food detour, but um, since I'm passionately interested in food, it's kind of neat that these things were in the record. So I can kind of explore that, so. And yeah. do we know more about uh, ale making at that time? Are you able to narrow it down anywhere other than just high quality monk quality ale and weak ale? No, see that it's kind of frustrating because with the ale they really just seem to have two main types, two grades. So they're looking at quantities and they're looking at um, yeah amounts. There, There's one or two records where they talk about things like malt or yeast wanting to get entitlements of that, suggesting that these people who held these retirement arrangements actually may have been doing some brewing on their own, which was a very common thing like at that time, especially women were quite involved in brewing, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> so um, yeah, the, like the, the one woman I can think of who got an entitlement of yeast for making ale, um, yeah, she was probably wanting to brew her own. And does that imply that they were brewing for more than their personal use, but that was probably another means of income, or can, can we know that? We, we can't know that from the records I'm looking at. What I could do is sort of do some cross-checking, because there are some records of um, the courts where they had inspectors doing inspecting of um, you know, who was doing brewing in a certain place, and if there are any infractions you know, for selling like watered down ale or ale that had gone off or something, maybe see if her name appears there. But I'm guessing it was probably like for her and her servants. So when Henry dissolves the monasteries, all these people who have these retirement plans in place that involve them going to the monasteries and drinking all this lovely monk ale yeah. are suddenly wondering if they're out in the cold because he may have stripped them of their wealth. And as I think you indicated earlier, he may have just torn them down. Mm -hmm. And so there are these series of court cases you were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is the general outcome of these cases? Were they compensated? They are all, almost 
always compensated. Well, I should I should say every single record I've looked at, they get compensated. Whether they always get compensated as much as you would, like as much as the things were worth, is a little bit debatable. Like, um, like sometimes people had just annuities from the monsters, just cash annuities. So when uh, they go to court, it's just whatever the annuity was, they get the same amount. But so that their four hundred one k was a monastery. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. So, but when you've purchased something like maybe you know from fifteen twenty years back, something like that, and then you show up in fifteen forty and say, okay, I purchased this package at that time, and this is what I paid, well then they may say, well, okay, we'll give you this amount in compensation. So there's a bit of a judgment call, and sometimes it seems like perhaps that would not cover the same goods at the same price, because there was inflation. So do you know if before the uh, dissolution even, if someone is buying something in one generation, a set of benefits package for X money mm-hmm. and then a generation later showing up and saying, hey, where's my ale? Uh, presumably, if you're the abbot 45 years or 20 years mm-hmm. later, and now you've got to provide ale for this guy, presumably mm-hmm. there's got to be instances where you no longer have the money to supply. Are there cases uh, previous to that where people aren't getting what they're wanting from these uh, retirement plans? I can't think of cases of people not getting because I mean, there, there were some monasteries that shut down even before Henry VIII shut them down, but it wasn't that commonplace. And when they were shut down, it was usually by like someone like Cardinal Wolsey, you know, Henry VIII's right-hand man. He wanted to shut down some monasteries so that he could um, basically set up this, this college. And in those cases, yeah, he'd have to compensate people. So it was not the norm for a monastery to just sort of run out of money, they just go further and further into debt. <laughs> so, but this was one of the things was that, you know, bishops sometimes when they'd be visiting monasteries in their district, they'd say, wait a minute, you're digging yourself into a financial hole because you're selling all these retirement arrangements hoping to get ready cash so you can build a new abbot's house or a new tower and then hey, wait a minute, well, if some of these people live like 30 or 40 years, then... So, and, yeah. and as someone who works in a humanities department, you have no, <laughs> no modern analogies oh, no, not to at all. understand possibly <laughs> what would relate to that. No. Um, so the fact that he, uh, Henry felt he had to compensate uh, everyone indicates that there's sort of a, a political cost that he didn't want to pay exactly. for dissolving yeah. the monasteries. Yeah. But, uh, so who were the big losers in there? Who was he willing to stick it to? Well... Like some of the, say, monks and nuns, um, they might get really quite pitiful pensions because, I mean, when they're resolved, these people had to go somewhere. And um, the monks, very often, because they were priests, they could actually get jobs being priests in the new Anglican church. But the nuns, I mean, they were really you know, out of luck because they were not allowed to get married and yet their monasteries were, you know, that had been their homes for such a long time were shut down. So, yeah. So, so there was a decision at that time, hey, let's not have nuns in our new thing. Yeah. And was that uh, a cost-saving measure in some <laughs> part? Um, well, I mean, in the sense that 
you know, sometimes, yeah, they didn't give them hardly anything in the way of pensions. So, yeah, they, they, they weren't a burden on the state. So, so Henry VIII was a lot like a university. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I'll not comment on that. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Allison, for talking to thank us today. Thank you, Robin. This episode is also brought to you by The Dreamlands, crowdfunding now on Indiegogo. This is the first movie adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Dream Cycle ever to be made. Produced by the team that brought us Defarba, a highly praised adaptation of The Color Out of Space. You can help this independent movie get made by pledging on Indiegogo. Or you can actually get your share of future profits by crowd investing. Take a look at your options as well as the three spectacular teaser trailers at www.the-dreamlands.com Dare to dream. The crinkling of Doritos bags, the fup of opening Mountain Dew jugs, and the sight of uh, the familiar shag carpet and artificial paneling on the walls tell us we've entered the gaming hut, and apparently we have entered it in a litigious mood. Robin, and I'm not talking about suing because you were forced to play a character with a four strength because that's what you rolled, or forcing people to uh, crowdsource their magic book. I'm talking about... uh, (laughs) legal action within the confines of the game as opposed to around the game itself. So, Robin, what have we got for making lawyering fantastic and fun? So, in, in the previous segment, we heard uh, Allison Fizzard tell us about uh, Corides, this arrangement whereby people would set up their retirement uh, by contracting with a, a monastery or a nunnery. And in the case of Henry VIII, when he dissolved all those things, there was a huge wave of court cases when everybody went to get compensation or some sort of alternate arrangement from the king now that he had erased all of these institutions that they uh, were owed retirements from. And so I thought that this uh, we could springboard off of that to the idea of what sorts of game story ideas you can get from the idea of uh, legal petitions. We're used to thinking, particularly in a sort of fantasy context of the characters mostly dealing with the law because they are outlaws or outsiders or skeevy characters who are uh, getting into trouble and floating the authorities. And that's plenty fun. But I thought we could talk about ideas for dealing with legal authority when you actually have a case, when you have a case to bring before who that authority is and what sort of interesting ideas could come out of that. So the most obvious one there is Uh, just the one we have there where you are probably speaking on behalf of somebody else because player characters in a fantasy world are not uh, typically near retirement age. Nobody retires. They just die in total party kills. But uh, maybe you have an uncle or an aunt or some other patron. Or the guy who keeps the tavern. uh, The the tavern keeper, your uh, sort of retired wizard who taught you magic, and they come to you saying that uh, the 
wizard school or guild or whatever it was that promised me my retirement fund. I've just come to them and found out that the new king has confiscated all of their gold and they're not honoring any of their courties. And we've got to go before the king. But, you know, I'm not much of a talker. Uh, you guys are the heroes who saved us from the kobolds and then from the gnolls. And you've got a lot of uh, local respect. I want you to make my case before the king. And then that can bring you into a situation where, first of all, you're contacting the authorities probably for the first time. And also there might be some sort of mystery behind why the king has grabbed all this loot or just that you're trying to find a way to contain his power. Maybe the king is granting most requests but has some sort of reason why he doesn't want to help out uh, your particular patron and you have to figure out what that is and negotiate your way through. Or you could just, you know, be drawn into court intrigue in that way. Yeah, the real problem, I think, with that, I mean, obviously you can, you know, <laughs> talk about ripped from the headlines, the sorts of stories you can get into in terms of seeking uh, legal uh, redress or going to court to defend someone who's accused unjustly of of bad witchcraft, as it was the good witchcraft that you guys do, um, or whatever it happens to be, those sorts of stories should be fairly easily pickable, outable, as you look at, you know, your own newspapers and see who's suing who for what. But I think that the problem... First of all, is that, you know, even more than our day, medieval justice is arbitrary and is very much dependent on sort of who you know. And I think that the notion of making a, a legal case interesting almost always defaults towards making it even more arbitrary and even more depending on who you know. And I think it's hard to get that sense of, of the actual wheels of justice turning. If it's if if the king, for example, has just confiscated all the gold of the Magician's Guild, and that's why the Magician's Guild isn't doing payouts, and you go to the king and you say, hey, make this payout for our buddy the tavern keeper, our buddy the, the, old, um, uh, the old sage, and the king's like, that was the whole point of me taking the money away, is so that no, I wouldn't have to pay it out again. And I, I think that it, it can be hard to justify getting the result that you want in a way that it isn't hard to justify getting the results that you want if you just busted into a tower and started slaughtering kobolds or, or gnolls. Yeah, I think it's part of your premise you have to explain and have the players understand and realize why it is that the authority they're petitioning has some sort of stake or investment in appearing just, mm -hmm. if not being just. So, for example, in our confiscating the loot from the Magician's Guild, the idea can be, well... The magicians were running rampant. You can't have an orderly society with magicians. The king has taken all this money into his treasury, but honest non-magicians who were planning their retirement in the Magician's Guild, if they prove themselves loyal to the king, will evaluate all of these different cases. And of course, the vast majority of people will be perfectly compensated, which may be true or may be the line. And then your job as you sort of navigate your way through the politics is to take into account the fact that the king wants to make the system seem to work. And of course, if you want to get some fighting in there, the tradition of trial by combat, right. uh, which has been uh, you know, used so suspensefully in Game of Thrones a couple of times, is something that lets the character who wants to bash things uh, have a sort of a high stakes thing that resolves matters the way that fantasy role playing games typically resolve things. And then that also gives a justification for, you know, why is the 
tavern keeper or the magician coming to you guys to solve his legal problems, well, that's because you've got the big guy in the armor who can engage in trial by combat, or you've got the cleric who can petition the gods for signs of the gods' favor, because, of course, that's another big part of medieval justice systems is the trial by ordeal. So in this setup, it might be the, the cleric who undergoes an ordeal and, you know, you're going up against the cleric from the other side uh, who's arguing in favor of the uh, petition not being granted and you have to demonstrate your superior power to withstand the elements or fire or uh, whatever it is. And once that happens, once you demonstrate your superior power, then that opens up other story possibilities for you beyond just this petition, because you've, you know, won this trial by combat against this famous badass knight, or you've demonstrated that you are impervious to fire. Well, everybody knows that that's really the, the hands of the gods working through you to say, this is the way the court case should come out, because we all know the gods are very interested in legal proceedings. But people still figure, well, you're impervious to fire and you beat this other guy. And so that opens up other opportunities. People come to you for other reasons and it integrates you into this cod medieval society. Yeah, I think that the notion of, I mean, there's sort of a couple of parallel notions that you have to take into account. First, there's the notion that if you're going to make it a big challenge moment in the story, as opposed to the bard rolls his persuade versus the king's be a jerk, and it turns out the bard is really persuasive, and the king nods, and you get a thing, and it was a really, it's just a little spotlight moment for the bard, as opposed to a big challenge uh, akin to a dungeon level in the game. I, I think that you need to make sure that there's something for everyone to do or to contribute. So the thief may not be able to, you know, um, do anything in terms of a trial by ordeal, because the gods are already suspicious of him, but maybe he can go steal blackmail evidence against the prosecutor or he can go steal find the piece of evidence that will clear um or that will demonstrate that the uh that the tavern keepers uh actually had that you know that uh that cordy set up you know and and that that can be the thief's role then you the fighter all right he can do the trial by combat against when um the bad guys up when they they win the case straight up uh after all the other characters the bad guys then appeal to trial by combat and then the fighter gets to save the day at the end and so each character, I think you need to sort of find a thing that they can do or a spotlight moment for them. And maybe it's not even a, a skill-based thing, but if, if the player character is someone who likes romance and, and, and flowery talk and everything, you can say, well, you know that the king likes to listen to his wife's opinion because he knows that she is good and pure and honest, and he obviously has to get down in the muck of politics. But maybe if you go sweet-talk the king's wife into being on your side, who knows? And then the danger is what if someone sees you sweet-talking the king's wife and they they put an ill color on that kind of behavior? And then so that, you, you add those sorts of of little uh, sub-challenges or, or sub-pieces of the plot to get the whole case uh, heard and heard honestly and heard in your favor, and then you win the, the trial by ordeal at the end. The other thing, I think that you, when you mentioned tying yourself into the society, that's an even more important thing. And the tricky thing about that is that if the trial is annoying enough, the players will resent being tied into the society. They will say, "Why the whole reason we carry swords and kill things is that we don't have to deal with this nonsense." And since a lot of players are playing, you know, the game deliberately to escape from the, the modern world with its bureaucracy and its and its filthy laws against stabbing, they also have that you know their their players and the and the characters are are aligned in a way that they maybe aren't in other ways. And so I think you have to work 
to make sure that the rewards of being integrated into society are are immediate and present, even if they don't, you know, technically maybe outweigh the dangers of being integrated in. Yeah, this can't, can't come from a place of, I want my medieval world to be more realistic, where there are more brushes with the law and that everything has to go through the king. Just being more realistic is not answering the question, why do my murder hobo player characters want to do this? So you have to find for yourself a reason why it is attractive for everybody to go off and engage in this process. And for some of the characters, the ones who don't necessarily have uh, submissions within the, the broader pursuit of dealing with this case, is that they could have subplots that they engage with. So, you know, if you're the weirdo clockwork man and there's no clear way for you to, you're not really part of society and there's no clear way for you to engage with the case, well, maybe you encounter a builder of clockwork man as part of the king's court and have a sort of a B story that goes on uh, parallel to the A story. So you do have to stop and say, what's in it for all the players? What is going to make it seem appealing to them to get them to engage with this? And you don't want it to be a boring court proceeding or a rigged, obviously unfair court proceeding, you want to be like any mission that you set before them, one that has a clear upside and one that will deliver some sort of emotional reward if they complete it. Yeah, I think um, in this context, uh, our beloved sponsors, Atlas Games, had a a book in the early days of D20 called Crime and Punishment or something like that that was a, you know, putting legal stuff into your into your game. And although obviously if you're not playing D20, it will have less immediate use if you are playing any of the F20 games or in an F20 tradition, even it might uh, provide some useful information and, you know, some sort of colorable ways to deal with, um, uh, with medieval law. Although I, if I remember correctly, about half of it was, you know, de- finding a criminal and, and bringing him in, which of course is not something you necessarily need a lot of help with in terms of, you know, figuring out, cause that's a more standard, you know, get the bad guy type adventure. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's something to look for. And and another key law of the medieval period is that uh, once you've got about 15 minutes in a podcast segment, it's time to move on to the next segment. Lex Segmenti. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tells us that we have once more entered into proximity with Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated puts Ken in as he goes back into the time stream to bend, fold, spindle, sometimes even mutilate it. Often on Ken's time machine, we talk about things that uh, Ken has been asked to do and is possibly about to do, but in this case, as is sometimes the rule. We are going to talk about something that Ken has already done and figure out why he did it. So on July 11th of 1881, the future George V, uh, serving aboard the HMS Inconstant, saw the ghostly apparition of the Flying Dutchman. In a moment, I'm going to ask how and why you did this, but before we do that, we should provide some context. So Ken, uh, tell us first of all about uh, George V. What do we know about him, or need to know about him, in order to understand why you did this? What we need to understand, first of all, is that he was king, uh, but he wasn't expected to be king. He was, uh, begin- at beginning, he was the third in the line for the throne, and that's why they have him on dangerous warships instead of, you know, tucked away, hopefully, in a castle somewhere. But he and his brother, Prince Albert Victor, 
got uh, put into the into the navy, and they were sailing around on on various ships, uh, sort of be- becoming proper young men in the in the British tradition. And that's what he's doing there. And then there's a series of uh, deaths of his uh, older brother, and then um, uh, his father dies, uh, King Edward the Seventh, uh, after having become King Edward the Seventh. So then he becomes King George the Fifth in I believe 1910. And then he basically is the king who oversees, in order, the failure of Irish home rule, the gutting of the House of Lords, and World War I. And sort of, there's a lot to be piled onto him as a king, and everyone seems to think he, he did okay. He's, he's uh, generally not seen as a really bad king. But he was really, I think because he was sort of not brought up to think he was ever going to be king, he had sort of a, a, a reluctance to put himself forward and a reluctance to, to sort of insist on stuff. And so his... His, his cabinet and his advisors sort of got their way a little more, and he's on record as saying that if he'd really understood what they were trying to do in 1912 when they were gutting the House of Lords, that he might have actually tried to stop it. And so there's a sense that he, he, he I guess by personality, he's a compromiser and a, and a, and a, and a agree-to-disagree type guy, which means that at this moment when the British monarchy is, is officially becoming a dead letter, you know, in terms of, you know, actual political power, he's, he's sort of standing by at the sidelines instead of maybe, you know, in there defending the old royal and, and uh, aristocratic uh, prerogatives. Now, when you think of compromisers or agreeing to disagree, someone who does not come to mind is uh, Captain Vanderdecken or Vander Kuchen, who is the basis of the myth of the Flying Dutchman, which basically says sometime in, in the 1600s, and of course this is a myth, so there's all sorts of variants, this Dutch captain was rounding the, the uh, Cape Horn in the face of this terrible, terrible storm, and the passengers begged him to relent and turn back, and he said no. And the crew begged him to turn back and relent and say no. And in some versions, then, even uh, the Holy Ghost or uh, Jesus himself shows up on deck and says, relent, turn back, and the captain tells him no, and in some cases threatens to shoot the Holy Ghost. And as punishment uh, for his uh, hubris, of course, the, the ship not only goes down, but he's condemned to sail the, the waters of the earth uh, forever uh, with his poor, unfortunate crew and passengers dragged along, even though they did their best to dissuade him. And so that's the, the myth of the Flying uh, Dutchman. Are there any other uh, elements of that you want to bring into uh, context here? Well, there is the uh, the legend that if you speak to the the, the Dutchman or the Dutchman hails you, that is a, a a a portent of doom. It's not just that you get to see the ghost go by and say, "Ha, wouldn't want to be that guy." But if you talk to him or he talks to you, then someone's going to die. Your your ship is going to uh, wreck. The, the 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 guy who talks to him is going to die in an accident, and so it becomes a sort of you know a banshee of the sea in in a lot of ways, as well as also being a really great. Uh, uh, sort of ghost ship story, so I, I think that's the the other element of the of the myth that is important. And and one of the the explanations for why this myth is popular in the English speaking world is that it puts the Dutch in a poor light because they were on <laughs> on the ascendant at this point. But the Dutch also sure. tell this story, and they add the cool detail that the sails of the ship are blood red. So having set all of this up, uh, can we know that you arranged for the future George V? to see the apparition of the Flying Dutchman. Do you want to tackle the how or the why first? Well, the how is simple. The uh, Flying Dutchman that the people see is usually a mirage of some kind. Either there's another ship, and so there's an inversion layer, and you sort of see the image of that ship moving around. 
but there's but it's going against the wind, obviously, or or in some way behaving in a ghostly fashion, or just looks wavery. It's easy enough to recreate that kind of thing with a holograph projector or the hologram projector that uh, one might have if one is a uh, common traveler in time. I think if you remember, I was using my hologram projectors to uh, good effect at the Siege of Orleans back when I was uh, hanging out with Joan of Arc. So I just unmothball the old holo projector, set it for Flying Dutchman, and there I go. It's it's really very simple to do that. Right. In, in HeroQuest terms, you have a mastery in holograph projector. I have a mastery in anything that is roughly the size and shape of a bottle. So <laughs> I default <laughs> to holo projector from vodka. There we go. Okay, so uh, that explains the how. So uh, why did you do this, and uh, what effect did it have? Well, the um, the thing that I did, the reason that I did it is because and I, I don't want this to get around, Robin, so, you know, don't uh, go blazing I, I this all over the place. This. Don't, don't worry about this. it. But I, we have long suspected in Time Incorporated that there may be other people operating in time who do not have the best interest of everyone at heart. Oh, well, we know this for a fact because yes. there's the, for example, the Hitler inversion shield that prevents people right. from killing yes, Hitler yes. because so many different time travelers have gone back to that period. They've bollocked it all up. So... What uh, the reason that I put the flying Dutchman there? There's two reasons that I put the flying Dutchman there. Uh, to make sure that this report of the flying Dutchman gets recorded, it has to be witnessed by you know someone who's who's going who's going to make it into the historical record. And then by comparing the historical record to what I know that I did, I'll be able to determine if it's been monkeyed with, right? So it's it's like putting down a baseline or a um uh, or or a, a standard version, and then you measure the deviations from that to determine what's going on. Now, the specific reason that I wanted to check this particular time is because the reason that I did it was to set up the death of Henry Ewell, who was the uh, four topman who saw the Flying Dutchman, according to the ship's log and according to the records of uh, George V's tutor, a man named Dalton, and then. Uh, the next morning, he fell off of the fort topmast and uh, smashed himself to atoms in on the on the fort on the forecastle. And it turns out that Henry Ewell was part of a plot to murder George V and Prince Albert Victor, and he was going to do it in a uh, dramatic sort of suicide attack. And whether it was going to involve setting off the ship's powder store and blowing up the whole inconstant right there in Sydney Harbor, or whether it was going to involve some other sort of you know, uh, shrieking uh, oaths as he as he fires pistols at them. Which, which, by the way, is a complete digression. Uh, seems like a name you don't want to put on your warship. Inconstant. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have thought either, but uh, the British had so many warships that I think they may have been at some point getting, you know, get, getting desperate. They just had a. They're just randomly stabbing their finger into the dictionary, yes. and it's somebody. Oh, inconstant. Oh, that's that's not a great element. Oh, screw it. We've got more ships to name. Right. And it's interesting that they were only on the inconstant because their actual ship, the Bacante, um, had rudder problems, and so they they got moved into the inconstant, and that uh, that was that made me suspicious because if you go back and you look at those those versions of this story, you can see some of them say that it was in the Bacante, and some of them say that it's in the inconstant. And that's the sort of tricky little thing that might be time manipulation at work. So anyway, this guy Henry Ewell was going to uh, dramatically kill. George V, future George V, and Prince Albert Victor, and as a signal either for a, a Fenian uprising in Australia, because they had a lot of uh, Irish there who were... The Eureka Rebellion was about 20 years in the past, or a little less, but Ned Kelly had just been executed in 1880, so there's sort of 
an undercurrent that might have been triggered off, or it might have been timed for the planned uh, attack on Queen Victoria, where she was to be blown up during her Diamond Jubilee, in, or I forget if it was her Diamond It's one of her Jubilees in 1882. She did have a number of them. She did have many, many Jubilees, and they were going to blow her up in 1882. The, a researcher, Christy Campbell, theorizes that it was the British government that uh, set up the Jubilee plot in order to discredit Irish home rule. And again, it's interesting that this murder would have probably further discredited Irish home rule because uh, George V actually sort of wanted there to be Irish home rule, and he tried very, very hard to, to get everyone to come together. He was very conscious of his role as king of a unified empire. He didn't want to be all mean to the Irish. Uh, per se. And so I, I think that there's, again, it, it, it got a, a little time stink on it. So the, the, the notion of killing them, that would have made Princess Louise uh, eventually be Queen Louise, and that opens up a possibility of marrying her off to someone who's easily controlled or, or, or something else. It opens up a, a big can of time worms to knock out um, uh, the, the royal succession right there. Time worms are the worst kind of worms. They are the worst kind of worms. So basically, I had to, you know, give Henry Yule a good hard shove in the back while he's up there in the top gallant and uh, see if the report remains the same going down into the future. And like I say, the, the name of the boat shifts back and forth. Sometimes the, the location does. Sometimes you see the year given as 1880, not 1881, or June instead of July. So I'm pretty sure that Someone has been trying to monkey with this to to mess with King George V. So, if only because he is the target of my unknown adversary, I have to keep an eye on on King George, even though I don't particularly have any, you know, one way or the other, you know, positive or negative feelings about the guy. He seems like a nice enough fellow for a, a British king, which is hard enough to do, I suppose. So, do we have any uh, idea if sighting the Flying Dutchman had any sort of impact on his uh, life or thought afterwards, or was just one of those things where you go, go figure? I think it's one of those deals where he sees it, and, I mean, he's, he's, he's relatively young at the time that he sees the, the Dutchman. He's 16 years old when he sees the Flying Dutchman, so I think it's at, to the extent that it has an impact on his, on his thought, it might be a, this is a bigger world full of more uncertainties type thought, or it might have been you know, seeing the Flying Dutchman and then having the, the, the foretopman who saw the Flying Dutchman follow his death, that might have been the thing that actually, you know, put him in the mind that someone's always watching and it's better to, you know, move slowly and be sure you're right. I think that that is probably overdetermined from the amount of evidence that we have. I think it's much more likely that just... But you were there. So. Yes, I was there. But again, I can't see into the guy's heart and he's he, he's not a big talker or a particularly heavy drinker, so my normal abilities to win, my, win his confidence are, are at a uh, somewhat of a standstill. Uh, and so how did he strike you when you met him? Uh, when I, well, when I met him in uh, 1881, when he was 16, he struck me as a, you know, a, a, a good kid, you know, spoiled rotten, obviously, but trying not to show it, which is, I suppose, the best you can expect uh, from a royal. Uh, when I met him later on, when we were uh, talking about uh, Irish home rule, he, again, he, he seemed like he was... He was not operating with, with a full set of, of understanding of what's going on, but he seemed like he wanted everything to work out for the best, which, again, is, is I think, the best you can expect. He's, he's a nice enough guy, and I don't wish him any particular ill will, and I certainly don't want him killed by mysterious time strangers, unlike Prince Albert Victor, who was a horrible person and could have been thrown over the side of the ship with no particular loss to anyone. Well, I think uh, with that little character vignette, that uh, wraps up not only a segment, but yet another episode of 
our illustrious podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The One-Shot Podcast. Dreamlands. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help us arrange our chorides by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Joining such patrons as Daniel Dover. And Martin Runquist. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or sarcophagus by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>